Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you could submit the questions that we're going to be answering on our panel today, and you can um, join into our community work. Check out our how you can be involved in our larger community at officehours.global. Um, typically, our second hour, we um, spend a little longer on a particular topic, and today is education hour. Uh, or Saturday is our education day. So we'll be having uh, an education hour focused second hour. We'll be looking forward to a special guest, Alan Carrington, with his pedagogy wheel. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, feel free to submit your questions there at uh, in Mukana. And we have a fantastic panel that we can ask uh, technical questions about media and production or um, a lot of educators too. So a great first hour to submit your general education questions. Well, let's see what we have. Dave? Good morning. Andy Kokendorfer starts us off today with, um, he, he has a large number of 2018 Max Mini i7 machines from an office decommissioning. Would these computers be sufficient for students to learn editing with DaVinci Resolve? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I looked up some of the specs for DaVinci Resolve 17, and yes, i7s are the low end of the scale, but they are capable of running it. And that the concerns are mostly about RAM. Uh, 16 gigs of RAM will allow you to edit 1080p. If you want to go to 4K, it's recommended you have 32 gigs of RAM. Uh, it would be important to see what the onboard storage is, whether you're using uh, fast hard drives with lots of capacity, or if you want to, and with Resolve, it's recommended you have the fastest drives you can get because that'll make your editing smoother and your rendering faster. Um, they recommend putting SSDs either inside the mini or maybe attaching um, SSD towers or um, other outboard devices so that you can keep your files external and, and work with very, very large files. Um, one of the other things was that um, you might want to remove a lot of whatever software was on there for their business purposes and just make it a dedicated machine. Now, of course, if it's going to go to students learning editing, likely the school would sort of have a, a set package of things that are on all their computers. And then you just remove anything that might interfere with the process, things that might call out under the internet or things that might check in with iCloud and that sort of stuff. So if that is already part of the blocking or management of the machines, then once they're formatted and, and set up for school use, they're likely going to work really well with Resolve. I don't know if your school has a lot of licenses for Resolve, so I won't comment on that. But that's my recommendation. Yes, uh, those minis ought to have a future life as, as teaching machines. Thanks for that uh, summary, Dave. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. The M1 generation has taken us so far that uh, usually there's a there's not that big of a gap between the, uh, the from one year to the next. Let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. New York schools announced they are lifting their moratorium on access to Jet GPT, saying that it's now worth experimenting with and the tool to learn about it. What are what do our educators think about this change of policy? John, you want to start us off? Yeah, if one of the goals of public education is to prepare students to be productive members of society, then we should probably teach them how to use the tools that will be important to be adults. And so I think it's not just good that they did this. I think it's critical that they 
gave students access to the tools that are likely to be used as adults. And it'll be incumbent on the teachers to make sure students also learn the ethics of using them as well as where, what they're good at and not good at. Dr. Clark? I agree with John that this is a good idea, um, in part because it's an inevitable development for some students at least, and teachers probably, who would be using this regardless of what the policy is. So let's make a policy that uh, makes that legal rather than turn it into a snipe hunt. But um, even more importantly, in a way than than John's uh, caution that, that teachers need to take this as a, a learning opportunity, I think, or rather a teachable moment, I think that um, te teachers and others in the New York City school systems are going to learn things from the kids as they experiment with using chat GPT and perhaps other uh, programs like that um, in ways that we couldn't have imagined. So I think it's going to be a great temporary um, teachable moment on for everyone involved. And uh, it's, it's a better way to to deal with uh, some of the anxiety that some people have about AI taking over the world and turning us all into robots um, to see how, how uh, variously and creatively uh, people can uh, make use of it. So that's two thumbs up. I wonder for our educators, you know, this isn't the first tool that's uh, revolutionized and uh, really caught the fascination of individuals. Um, is there a precedent, do you think, in the past where being uh, more apprehensive about a new tool or service has served the education community well? Um, or is it more of not letting kids use calculators? Uh, go ahead, Dave. Well, um, I go back to where um, university computer people were using punch cards to work with mainframes, and our high school picked up a punch card uh, typewriter. It would make punch cards and punch tape. And we all got instructions on this, and we all got uh, very used to using it and figured, you know, we would have jobs and data entry in the future. And, of course, I've never had to use one ever since. That was an early adoption. The other side was computers in the classroom and giving students the ability to access things through the computer or to use it to learn things with or to write things with. And in the first years, uh, it was a, a computer in the classroom, which was shared by all the students. And that changed because then they realized it was actually more of a resource. They, the, um, Administration of schools like to keep control of things, so they before they understand them, uh, they're not going to let the students sort of mess with them. So I think New York City is showing that uh, they think they understand now what ChatGPT can do for a student, and maybe there's some things the students can teach the teachers. Um, so I think it's a good move, but there are examples in the past of where they've tried to control something, and then, like Dr. Clark says, it becomes one of these sort of chase-your-tail things. I'm not going to name any names, but I used to have to do manual square roots because. Go ahead, John. I hated manual square roots. And I actually saw someone with a t-shirt with a square root on it the other day. First thing I did, I pulled out my phone and said, what's the square root of this? I didn't even use a calculator. I just Googled it. Um, it was some pun. 
a tool that teachers maybe could have been more cautious about and and help our students navigate, but we're just totally laissez-faire is social media. And there's been lots of um, research showing a correlation between the rise of social media and student happiness in general. Um, and I think it would have been helpful if we had had a critical eye at how to use it and when to use it instead of just pretending like it didn't exist for the first 10 years and then just saying everyone should be in there all the time for the next 10 years. Interesting. I didn't think of that one. Uh, Dr. Clark. I'm harking back like Dave did to the days of the uh, introduction of the Apple IIe into one of them into each classroom in elementary schools. And, uh, Initially, as Dave said, um, they weren't used really because um, teachers were ill-prepared and, and perhaps anxious about looking ill-prepared. So a lot of them stayed in storage. Um, and that, that didn't change until um, enough interesting programs were written on distributed on five and a quarter inch floppy disks, as I recall. Um, the one I recall um, best is um, a, uh, an archaeological dig program uh, that took you to Saqqara in Egypt, uh, the, the Valley of the Kings, and uh, allowed users to um, re-experience a version of those digs and discovering artifacts and seeing maps that located the, uh, the location of the Valley of the Kings and so forth. And uh, I worked individually with one teacher who was, I think, a fifth grade teacher who was eager to uh, integrate this into her social studies curriculum. And but it took a professor, dad, uh, that's me, and and this eager teacher to work out how to get um, 20 kids involved in using one system, one program and one, uh, one uh, machine to integrate that into their world. So it, it was a slow process of from fear and uh, reluctance to use it to um, the software catching up with the hardware and its capabilities, and then to uh, a kind of a tutorial approach on the part of me and this teacher to uh, move this technology into actual relevant use in the classroom. So we may well find a variation of that pattern with chat GPT, but uh, because kids are much more, um, tech savvy today than they were in the 1980s. Um, as I said earlier, we may, we may be learning more from the kids and their, their creative use of chat GPT than, uh, than we are from in services. Dave, would you like to weigh in? Well, it occurred to me as we were talking about the social media and that sort of thing, it, it's, it wasn't until people had PCs in their home uh, that they, students got a chance to work with a PC outside of class and mess with it and learn all the ins and outs of it and its limitations perhaps, or its community, you know, working a modem on a phone line and 
someone in the family picking up the phone and disconnecting you. But all of the things that, you know, we've all smoothed out since then, but at the time you had to learn a lot of these details and it was too much for class time to do that. And for the period of time, people didn't have PCs at home. That was when the schools couldn't really have time. But when the kids learned it on their own and came to school with those skills, they could make the computer dance and, and actually reprogram it and make it do things that teachers weren't aware of. And then when, of course, the internet started to get into the schools, it was after the internet was bandwidth was at home, uh, wide enough for people to be able to research things online and find out more than just, you know, doing checkbooks and recipes, which was what PCs were sold on in the 80s. So I, I think, you know, when people are doing chat BT and GPT in their home, uh, or for other purposes and using it in the community or in everyday life, well, then it'll be more, uh, less of a challenge for the schools to accept the, the output from there. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, Dave, about when it's become accepted in households. Um, educators, do you find that the parents or the teachers tend to be more conservative about using new tools? Um, as it becomes something that the parents see or households become used to things, is that where that uh, starts to, to gain adoption? Dave? Well, I'll come back with video games. Um, I, I presented to teachers at conventions and I went to parent groups uh, for school, uh, parent teacher groups to, I was a guest speaker to come in and talk about the impact of video games on small children. And I told them not to worry about it. I told them that there's a lot of things they're learning in video games that might even become useful later in life. And uh, over the years, there's been some research that says the, the state of calm that a person develops playing high level video games and immersive video games uh, is akin to becoming a Zen Buddhist. So you you get into a state of alpha where you can respond and instinct instinctively receive what's going on and react to it in, without uh, being uh, anxious about it. Now, this isn't to say that isolating a student and having him do one thing for eight hours a day at home is healthy. Uh, anyone who's in motocross knows that eight hours on a bike is not healthy for you. So the game playing is not the problem, it's the isolation. And when I directed the parents to look at uh, not so much restricting game time, but restricting the context in which it's done, that if the student or child has spare time, that's an appropriate use of their time. But if they haven't gone outside in a week, well, then that's something to be concerned about. So it was a case of not challenging what the game was doing to attract the person. It was more a case of providing more out, uh, opportunities for them to engage with other people and to be doing activities that didn't require a controller. So I think in the same way that ChatGPT is not going to confine us all to our rooms and make us talk to it, uh, I think once once we get a sense of a technology in our own lives and balance with it, such as a smart refrigerator, then uh, we can adjust and make make sure it's properly uh, incorporated into education. Yeah, and it's possibly it's a societal uh, question as well as the rate of innovation in recent generations has accelerated much faster than in previous. So being conservative or um, uh, concerned about the potential ill effects of new technology probably was the, the safe way to go for a while. As our technology accelerates, is it possibly something that we're teachers or parents have to stay ahead of the curve 
Uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, regarding whether parents or teachers are more adopting of new technologies, if you if you think about lining everyone up on a spectrum of um, how likely you are to adopt a new technology or encourage it, I think the median teacher is very close to the median parent. Um, there's probably enough similarity between them that there's no statistical difference. Uh, other than that, potentially, if one of them skews younger, they might be more open to new technology because, as we all know, once you turn 40, everything that gets invented after that is evil. So, Yeah. Uh, uh, tell me about it. All right. Let's go to our next question. Sure. Our next question is from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Washington, D.C. Tony, what have you learned from 99 episodes of Conversations with Tony? Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Tony. Wow. Okay. So, um, what have I learned? I think the main thing that I've learned is that you can't be afraid to fail. That is the main thing that I learned, that you can't be afraid to fail. And it takes, it takes a village. Um, Initially, Conversation with Tony Moley was started in a webinar provided by Guy Cochran. And it was a one-man show. And I was doing it in a webinar. And I had a major lightning strike. And after that lightning strike, Guy galvanized... uh, a crew to provide uh, a product that was very much different than the one-man show. And it it had infrastructure, it had teams, it had AWS, and it had Zoom rooms and Zoom ISOs. and And in all of that, there was this constant push to try to make it better. And so we ended up using um, Video Ninja and we used, um, oh, I can't even think of all the different applications and and infrastructure that we pulled in and out of uh, in the early days. Uh, We've sort of settled into um, vMix now and Zoom Rooms and um, it is a very polished um, cloud production that works best with probably three to four people, but could run with two individuals if needed. Um, One of the interesting things I think about a conversation with Tony Mobley is that It was initially started, and there are not a lot of people that know this, but it was initially started to provide support for a political official who was running for office statewide in Georgia. And I had had a conversation with Alex, and he was saying that it was if he was up to 
using a um, a lab to create an opportunity to help this official that we would try to do it. And I reached out to members of the office hours community and we had a meeting and we were really serious about trying to do something in an extremely non-traditional way of politics. And it was, it was, I was excited and amazed. And, and I know most of you have never heard this story before, but it was just an amazing, amazing experience in terms of what we were going to try to do. And this was going to be extremely revolutionary in the way in which this was going to go about. And at some point uh, during the process, when I have reached out to all of these office hour members to, to do this, the person decided that, no, they were going to go the traditional way and do the things the way that they had been doing things in the political arena. They were going to do it that way. And so... Um, I had reached out to all of these people, so I had to go to all of these people and say to them, you know, I'm sorry that this man has decided that he does not want to to do this lab, to do this revolutionary kind of um, campaign. He's not interested in it, and I am so sorry. And there was... And I, I'm, I'm going to lift up a couple of names, and I hope they will forgive me for, for sharing some of the things that they said to me. In this meeting, uh, amongst others, was Chris Fenwick and Guy Cochran. Chris Fenwick said, well, I was only doing this to help you. I don't know as that person. I, I was only trying to do this to help you. And... You need to think about having your own conversations on whatever you want to talk about. Guy Cochran, amen that he, you know, he said the same thing. You need to, you need to have your own conversations. Liberty White, you need to have your own conversations. Clylock Lopez Waterman, you need to have your own conversations. And the list goes on and on and on. These individuals saying, you need to talk about the things that you think are important, that you think are valuable. And so I said, well, what do I have to lose? So I started with the webinar. And as I already shared, I had this catastrophic lightning strike that took out my internet uh, service. I had to get a replacement um, for my fiber connection uh, modem. And that is it. And so I think the most important thing that I have learned is that it takes a community and it takes, it takes not being afraid not being able, not 
fearing trying new things. Um, Dr. Clark was very instrumental in making suggestions in the very early days when we were trying to do, <laughs> we were trying to do a lot of, um, I'm going to say technology for regular people that were not office hours people. And we would have a lab at the begin at, at, at some point during the conversation. And it was, it was just so many different things. And it, the evolution of it is, is, um, it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing in terms of what conversations with Tony Mobley will eventually be. You know, there was some conversation about whether it, need, whether it needed to continue as conversation with Tony Mobley. Maybe we needed to name change. Um, you know, there were so many, so many people who have come in and participated in the infrastructure and uh, Jonas and, and Cherik Cheetah and there's so many Brian Shan. There are so many different people who have been involved in the process. Aaron Huslich of of being a part of trying to figure out the best way to continue to move forward. Um, it's just it was just so much in so many different things that we've had these these fantastic conversations that may have only had 20 views, but they were quality conversations. And then we've had those conversations where people sort of went crazy. And one I lift up, I know it's, that's not the proper name of it now, but John Preto's, um Office Hour Space, that conversation had 4,000 views. You know, I think the next one that uh, I had a conversation with Daria Musk, and that might have been a thousand views. And so, but the interesting thing is that even when you look at those conversations that were, and I probably had about maybe seven or eight conversations that were a thousand plus views. And I've had mostly we, we average around, I'm going to say consistently about 50 or 60 views per conversation, but we've had quite a few that were in the low 20s. The quality of the conversation, the, the, the message of encouragement, of lifting up, mental health conversations, education conversations, technology exposure to regular people, we are sort of spoiled in the office hours community because we are a part of this cutting edge community where things are amazing and earth shattering in terms of what we get to explore. Conversation with Tony Mobley gives me a chance to share some of these earth shaking things to regular people who, who a lot of times are not interested and don't even understand it. But at least they have the exposure. And I'm going to stop talking. I, I can continue to go on, but it's, 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 it's been so many things. It's, you know, you know, almost, you know, almost two years now. It's, it's just, I, 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 I'm just thankful to the office hours community 
And I, I get a lot of times people are saying, well, you know, you don't, you know, it's your thing. You don't have to talk about office hours and you don't have to constantly think office hours. And I'll say this and I'll stop. Um, you might not feel that I need to thank the office hours community. But I feel I need to thank the office hours community for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to go into all of them. But I will say, an old guy who had serious health issues was able to be able to connect with people all over the world, not just for conversation with Tony Mobley, but to be able to be able to uplift a small congregation in a rural church to now be able to share their ministry in the world. So I think office hours, I think Alex Lindsay, I think all of you who have been on the show, who work behind the scenes, who have contributed by just words of encouragement, even asking who's going to be on this week. You know, I thank you all so much for this opportunity and for allowing me to be a part of this community because I am probably, based on the way that I joined this community, probably the least likely person to have a conversation with the world. So I think well, that kind of gets can. back to the growth, Tony. We I heard you tell a story about how the original original idea was offering a new method of doing things and the individual declined, but you accepted. And so uh, the question then asks about what you've learned and uh, what has happened and what has progressed in these 99 years. Is it more the technology that's changed or your conversations? I, I think there's a combination of both because the technology definitely has changed. Uh, as I said, it was just a webinar that Guy provided and I went with it and I, I did the best I could by myself and um, me and Clylock, we, we just did what we could do. And it was, you know, it was, it wasn't bad. And if you look at those early episodes, my first conversation with Dr. Hasmuk Geyser, he coming in at 3 a.m. from Cape Town, South Africa, and we're talking about stuff and, you know, it's it, it was amazing. You know, the technology has been transformative in terms of the the ins and out of what the infrastructure actually is. And then the conversation changing from sort of a tech workshop, because that's initially what it was. My intention was to expose as many people to all of the wonderful things that we were learning in office hours that regular people just didn't know about. And, you know, you think about, you know, the Zoom fatigue idea and, and, and we're still, as a, as a world, we're still working on trying to help people overcome that, you know, so. What do you think I your 200th episode will, you'll learn by, Tony? <laughs> 
Maybe so. Maybe so, Josh. Dr. Clark. Uh, Tony said it all, but I'd like to shine a light on one one thing that I'm sure he learned and uh, many of us learned too, and that is we learn more about conversation. The first word in the name of this wonderful series, conversation has been described as a lost art in in the face-to-face world. And uh, what Tony gave us a platform to learn about and to uh, develop is a way of having a natural feeling and a natural sounding conversation through a medium that um, is different than sitting together at a table in a coffee shop or sitting together on a couch in someone's living room. Uh, There are a lot of contextual factors that um, enable face-to-face conversation that uh, are attenuated by the the requirement of turn taking and and uh, the ways in in which we we pose questions or respond to questions or interrupt each other or signal that we'd like to uh, have a turn now or comment comment on something that someone has just said without interrupting their uh, without terminating their turn so so tony has uh push forward on this, uh, what I would call a soft skill, non-technical skill of um, enabling conversations to feel natural and deep and significant uh, using a medium that uh, not many of us were practiced in uh, for having conversations. So thank you, Tony, for progress on the front of authentic conversation across. Thank you, Dr. Clark. And I'm sure that uh, the difference between having face-to-face conversations and ones in over digital mediums is something that, uh, Tony, you've been uh, uh, well-practiced in and have learned the distinction in. And the high, high notes for, no doubt, a lot of the people that you've had on your show, you've had conversations with outside of the show, but it certainly is a different medium whenever people are in that particular spotlight. Josh, if I can say one, one last thing. Um, it's a lot of work, too. And, and I, don't want, I don't want anyone to minimize that from the standpoint of uh, reaching out to get your guests doing the prep work that you need to do before they actually appear. There is a lot to it. There's a lot that I had no idea of in terms of, you know, preparation you need to. So we're, we're, we're simulcasting on YouTube and LinkedIn. There's, there's work that needs to be done in terms of preparation for that. And I'm so thankful that, you know, I've had, um, the guidance of, of Jeffrey Powers to help me with the, you know, I didn't know that you needed to have on your broadcasting to YouTube, you need to have a brand account. So, you know, if you're doing a an, an actual program, 
on YouTube, it needs to be a brand account. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> you know, there, there are just so many different things that, that you have to do. So I, I, I get almost giddy when I think about the fact that we're at night, you know, we've had 99 episodes. When you think about all of the work, all of the things that, that's behind the scenes that you have to do even before you get to, you know, being on the air and the prep and the, uh, it's just, it's just a lot, but I am thankful that I have had this opportunity and I would encourage anyone who is thinking about doing it, do it. The only thing that's going to happen if you fail is that you're going to get better at doing it going forward. And um, there's definitely a difference in the theory and actually practicing it. So no doubt, Tony, after those 99 shows, you've definitely learned the actual doing and the practical of it, which ties into our show of actually getting practical uh, use case. So actually, uh, instead of having theoretical knowledge of actually having practical knowledge, I will say, Tony, though, if it was a daily show, you'd be having your 700th. Just a thought. Let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. Someone just sent him a ring video of a car accident, and uh, he wants to know what the best way is to transfer the cloud footage to a file on his computer. Go ahead, John. Not completely tracking your the way this is worded here. If somebody sent you a link to the cloud footage or the actual footage itself, in which case you could download it. But Ring has a facility both in their app and the website to download footage directly off of their cloud. And if you can't figure out how to do that, then use ScreenFlow to do a screen cap and then save it on your local drive. Yeah, I can confer to that. The person that has the app um, should be able to have that downloaded, so they may need to send it to you a different way. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Is it possible to digitize 16 and 35 millimeter film audio as 32-bit float? Go ahead, Dave. Well, yes, it is. Um, digitizing 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film has been going on for quite a long time now. Uh, colorists and all that take their film and they transfer it to video or whatever digital video format you want to use. And they make a lot of corrections things and they actually can tune the audio as well and take out some noise and gate things that are uh, in a documentary, for instance. I guess the thing is that 32-bit is actually a record media uh, concern rather than a reproduction concern. So in the sense that 32-bit is great for high volume and high loudness uh, recordings, uh, if it's already on 16 millimeter or 35, it's already been formatted for a certain dynamic range. So that dynamic range is not going to change when you digitize. It's just going to be accurately represented. So I, I think if you were to remix the whole thing when you're digitizing the film, then you'd have to go back to the original footage or sound uh, recordings, uh, run them through a board and make them, you know, more dynamic range and then use a 32-bit recorder to capture that and then remix it to a level where it transfers to digital very well. But even digital has its limit to how loud things can be reproduced and transmitted and recorded. So. 32-bit is really a first-step media or, or advantage rather than a reproduction advantage, I guess, is what I'm getting at. 
Thank you, Dave. Yes, um, Mickey in our chat um, confers with that. You may not get much benefit from that wide of the dy dynamic range, although it is possible. And he has some instructions there in the chat. Also, uh, CP650 and CP750 units on the market um, have been on the market for the past few years. And he also notes that um, the 16 and 35 millimeter film might be in digital form. Mm -hmm. Let's go into our next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas asks, Optimus robots are projected to number 10 to 20 billion outnumbering humans. What impact will this have on us? Go ahead, John. Paul, you can't believe everything Elon tells you. There's a, there's a meme called Elon time and Elon numbers where he projects things way, way out of skew. Uh, he, he, Elon said this on stage at the shareholder meeting this week. And he says, I think that everybody should have two robots. That's where he came up with this number. It's never going to happen. Paul's, Paul's uh, happy because he lives next to the Gigafactory and he'd have to buy, buy Paul's land to store Optimus robots on his land. Oh, come on, John. Show some optimism. You know how exponential growth. When robots start building robots, there you go. Bada-bing. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I was with John on this. Where the where that number comes from is probably you know question the source rather than the number. Uh, if they do outnumber us, they're going to have to consume resources in excess of what we already do. Uh, they're going to need electricity. They're going to need to have a source of power. And if you've watched uh, Neo and the uh, Matrix, uh, that power is probably going to be us. Fascinating. This took a sharp turn real fast. Let's hurry up to our next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada is asking, has anyone on the panel used custom domains with the Apple Mail and iCloud accounts, iCloud Plus or Apple Mail? I have not. I've used uh, the anonymizing effect for mail and that worked really well for me. So if I subscribe to something and I don't want them to have my actual address, it'll actually make a, a serialized number, as it were, and relay all mail to that address to my address. And then I think I'm getting mail from these people. But in fact, on the other end, they don't know who I am. Uh, but I haven't used the domains thing yet. And that might be a thing I'll try. Yeah, I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, John's asking about using um, so the iCloud service under different named domain. So yeah, mm -hmm. I can't say that I have. Let's uh, maybe someone in our chat can help you out, John. Let's go to our next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Washington, D.C. Had anyone played with outputting SRT from the Zoom ISO 2.1 beta yet? I have not. Um, I saw the shiny new update from Liminal uh, to update to Zoom ISO 2.1. I've not yet gotten an opportunity of that, but I think it presents a very interesting um, opportunity to have distinct sources and to be able to send them out, uh, be able to grab those sources and to be able to send them out for different uh, processes. Um, we recently had um, Epifan in that was having some, some other uh, workflow and process for their connect feature that's able to use another workflow. So there seems to be more and more opportunities for disparate forms of uh, workflows that are being enabled. And I think um, both Liminal and Zoom um, are really benefiting from this because it means that 
contributions from Zoom are more viable than ever, uh, since there's so many different ways of, uh, of getting these inputs, especially with SRT now being featured. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Recent car and trucks and modified aftermarket systems are capable of 5.1 audio, and sometimes with a woofer as a low-frequency emitter, how can I use this in reviewing mastering? Hmm. It's a very challenging question because I don't do mastering, so I don't think anyone here does any 5.1 mastering. But I, I also wonder about the actual environment for recording, uh, where you're mixing something should represent a similar room that you're going to reproduce in. So if cars are coming with 5.1 or trucks are coming with 5.1 and you want to master for cars and trucks, do you, yeah, this would be an interesting environment to do it. I don't know how I'm going to get my mixing console into the front seat to do that or all the rest I might need with my drives and my power and my internet, but hey, worth a thought. Yeah, um, Mickey in our chat brings out that to encode to a master medium that is playable in the vehicle uh, can usually contain AC3, EAC3, or AC4 uh, encoded audio. So I hope that helps. Let's go to our next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is asking, the godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, quit Google and has dire warnings about AI's risk to humanity. What are these risks? Go ahead, John. Paul keeps falling for the clickbait. Jeffrey Hinton was Ilias Sutkever's uh, professor in Toronto in AI. And you don't get headlines saying good things and happy things about AI. You only say bad things. That that gets the press. And that's what you're start that's what you're hearing from Jeffrey Hinton. He's a little sour that his student went off and is gonna be a billionaire now. And open AI, just like just like Elon is a little myth that they're, it's the most popular app of all time. And so this is this is clickbait and this is Jeffrey Hinton trying to get in the press. That's what this is. Oh well, well, that works. We got 15 minutes of fame so far. Let's go to our next question. It's from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, Bill mentioned it is harder for young people to learn social cues as they grew up in the online first lifestyle. Could an AI assistant or similar technology be helpful for those on the autism spectrum to develop social skills? Um, I would say that at this point, uh, Douglas, so far no one has weighed in yet. Oh, here they come. I would say, though, that at this point the AI is not to a point where it's more human than human, uh, I would say. That is one of the things that you can almost <laughs> you know, perceive of some of the art and the way that the sentence structure is. Now, of course, as the, the algorithms get better at that, I'm sure they'll tweak some of the things that, that are their giveaways. But um, the way that I understand AI is that it doesn't really process things the same way that people do. Uh, we get a lot of the same results, but not going through the same process, I don't know that I'd trust it to have a better judgment than a human being, at least at this point, but I'd be happy to, uh, to see that change in future development. We'll start with uh, Tony Mobley. I'm going to say at the present level, AI would not be a good support for uh, social cues. 
it is still developing. And what I know about um, having taught um, high school autism for four years is that um, more than anything else, um, artistic students struggle with social cues. That is the, the main thing because it doesn't matter as much about their cognitive ability. In most instances, it has more to do with them being able to recognize social cues. And it is a big deal. And I would say at this point, and this is me speaking, not not a specific scientist, I would say that AI right now is in some ways autistic at its present level because it does not quite understand social cues. It's getting there, but it's it's kind of the thing of good information in, you know, good information out. And if you're not if you don't have a scientist who is working with AI that is intentional about positive social cues being put into AI, then there's going to be a deficit. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And I think um, large mo- data models of modeling groups of people is something that's very useful for tools like AI to model what a group's behavior might be. But if you're trying to distinguish an individual, that's something that these tools are not very well suited for at the moment. Go ahead, Dr. Clark. I agree with what's been said about the the limitations of AI at this stage of AI and at this, this stage of um, being able to use AI as an assistant uh, for people with uh, neurodiversity. But one app uh, that I think is that would could be helpful in the uh, social skills dimension is um, offering scenarios for regularly encountered. Uh, social situations like the restaurant scheme. What are the likely steps in uh, entering a restaurant, ordering a meal, um, having the waiter or waitress come back and check to see if everything's all right? And how do you respond to that? Sort of generating a a generic script or a template that um, people on the spectrum, especially I'm thinking of young men uh, who've who've lived at home and are now at an age where they're beginning to go out into society and um, may not be as practiced as uh, people not on the the spectrum um, to in these interactions. So there are several, you know, if you're buying an article of clothing in a, in a store, what, what's the usual, exchange with the clerk and the if it if you need to be measured 
um, how does that work and so forth. So having a kind of a preview or a template or a script even uh, that um, helps people get through these exchanges um, might be a helpful way to um, use AI as an assistant that could kind of generate some scripts that could be uh, literally memorized and and you 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 the person with um, on the spectrum could draw upon that script that lesson plan to get you through this um, social experience uh, relatively unscathed. Harshit, would you like to add? Oh, can't hear you, Harshit. I think Zoom might be mute for it, muted for you, Harshit. There you go. It's unmuted. So uh, what I'm just going to say quickly on this, if we look at it the other way around, uh, with most um, cues, it depends on where and how you, those cues are used. So with all of these tools, AI, I think, does give us the ability to make things better or faster, um, especially with applications such as uh, what Google or Apple is kind of creating. I've heard of an app called like Look and Speak, and that allows people to at least enable your speech and that gives the cues to the other person that, hey, this person might have a difficult time speaking, but they know what they're t they're thinking and saying. So you could still portray your information across. So uh, I think the AI is a good helper and it just makes our language a little bit better. So maybe it's not necessarily social cues, but in invertedly the speech itself could be a cue in its own. And Dave. I'm going to introduce another layer here, which is the neurological layer. Uh, neuroscientists have discovered, and they label a lot of the neurons in the brain, and they've discovered just in the last 10 or 15 years, there's a mirror neuron. That is, a neuron that detects the presence of another brain. And this has produced a limbic resonance theory of socialization. That is, when we encounter real people face-to-face -face or in a room or hear their voices in real time and can in interact with them, levels of the brain that are mirror neurons are searching for parallel cues from the other brain. And this is what we get as the social cues that we're even sometimes not even aware we're learning. Small children imitate their parents and they imitate speech before they get words. So we know this is going on in the brain before you even get to be socialized. And they do look at other members of the family to confirm that their feelings are being recognized. And this is a deficit that some people have not being able to do that or not having those mirror neurons firing properly. And limbic resonance is a thing that is how we socialize people. That is, we can only work together in cities as large as that we have now is if we all behave in a certain way and agree to behave with other people. So in that sense, yes, the socialization uh, might ha provide some cues through AI that you would know, uh, AI would teach you to look for certain things, but AI doesn't have mirror neurons and it's never gonna exceed us that way in order to be able to be as human as we need to be to teach how to do social cues. So I just wanted to add that little bit. Yeah, wait till tomorrow, it'll be like, now AI with mirror neurons. Let's go to our next question. From Jack Rupel again in Breckenridge, Colorado, could smooth ceilings or reflective parallel 
parabolic devices, enhance upward-firing Atmos speakers or Atmos soundbars. And um, we do have a comment uh, from our resident audio expert, Mickey, in the chat. And he says that um, parabolic services, no. Um, if one is considering investing in time and money in building a room with acoustic properties, um, then you might want to set them up properly with discrete speakers. So put the speakers in the design places as opposed to re relying upon reflections. I'll go with that. Let's go to our next question. It's from Paul Walhouse in Austin, Texas. Microsoft is announcing a new AI-powered co-pilot for its Microsoft 365 apps and services designed to assist people with generating documents, emails, presentations, and much more. How would Google Apps respond? Go ahead, John. So Satya Nadella announced the integration of Office 365 AI, the open AI stuff into Office 365 at the World Economic Forum back in January. Soon thereafter, Google announced the integration of their their LLMs into all of the uh, Google Workspace. And so it's a race. And so they're both coming down to the wire here, available both in beta right now. Um, so they're both, it's gonna be everywhere. It's gonna be ubiquitous and it's gonna be everywhere and it's going to help productivity immensely. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I was waiting for this question. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of apps that are providing a lot of these services. I suspect many are just trying to be acquired by the Googles and the Amazons. One I found out this week is called Gamma.app. And it's really interesting. It's a, a prompt-based generator for slide decks. And they do kind of come up sort of template-y, but they're very customized templates. And you can just say, oh, I want this bullet point list to be formatted as a table with an icon. And it just pops it in. And it takes 10 times less time to build a decent-looking slide deck, uh, although it's template-y, than it does to just uh, make something new. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Roberto Barrow in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Does the panel have a recommendation for a camera system that would allow us to monitor a pet remotely? And I would say that there are several um, IoT devices, Roberto. Um, you, you can um, have a lot of them that are designed specifically for outward facing and their focal points may reflect that. But if you're looking for observing something that may not be walking past a door at the usual human height, but at a slightly lower uh, gate, then you might want to look for things, uh, different camera systems that offer a wider field of view. Otherwise, it'll go right under your detector there. But a lot of um, different uh, camera systems that have a lot of home uh, systems, basically whatever works in your ecosystem, whether you're an Apple, Amazon, or um, you know, take your pick, uh, each of them have different uh, benefits and retractions based on what kind of ecosystem you're in. Let's go to our next question. Uh, maybe our last question for the hour from Douglas Carmichael. He's noticed uh, in many of the higher-end production trucks, there's a KVK frame switcher and a Ross XP Expression graphics system. Is it common practice to mix vendors in the high-end world? And wouldn't that create more interoperability issues than a single vendor? Yeah, Dave. My hand is up on this because really the question is standards. If you have a standard video 
format, you have a standard audio format, you have a standard digital transmission format. Well, it almost doesn't matter. It only matters that the manufacturer conform to those standards. So it's the same as cameras. It's the same as audio microphones. We have our digital microphones now that are trying to figure out the USB standard. So once you have the standard, you can pretty much buy any kind of system that you're comfortable using or familiar with. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, uh, producers, for our first hour of questions. We're going to be moving into our second hour of questions, into our education hour focus. But before we do, uh, just a few announcements. Our uh, lineup for next week is out, so check out the daily email. And several interesting uh, visits. So our business, we have wood turning with Sydney Drozda, uh, one of our local, uh, one of our own there. So we'll be interested to see how that works. Lots of guests, Alan Hawks for our graphics. We have Michael Curtis showing up for acoustic measurements on our audio day. And Thursday, we have our guide to shooting B-roll for video. And the return of our studio uh, specifications, our 10,000 studio is up next on Friday. So feel free to go to our website uh, if you don't have the email to be able to find out how you can join uh, the community as well as our different events. I see that our guest has arrived. So John, what are we gonna be talking about in our education hour? Thanks, Josh. Today we have our special guest is Alan Carrington from Australia. He's a learning designer and educator who created the Pedagogy Wheel. It's a tool that helps teachers use mobile apps effectively in their teaching. He has a background in print production, publishing, and marketing. He's an Apple Distinguished Educator. He's even won two major teaching awards in Australia, including a national OLT citation. He's got two master's degrees, one in education, one in interactive media. Most importantly, he's passionate about helping teachers make pedagogy drive the use of technology, not the other way around. So producers, if you still haven't downloaded the, downloaded the packet, make sure you go to Mukana and download the packet from our link. It's a resource that expands on a lot of what we'll be discussing today. And you can even reference specific slide numbers in your questions if you have them. To kick us off, we're going to have Alan share at a high level his process for instructional design. It will start pretty shallow, and your producer's questions, if there's some topic you want us to dive deep on or grip on, go ahead and put them in the chat, and that's where we'll guide our conversation. Alan, take it away. Thank you, John. Uh, everybody's listening to my accent. G'day, everybody. Yes, I'm at the other end of the world. Um, I'm going to move very quickly through a number of slides and content. Uh, this started uh, over 10 years ago, and it primarily because teachers would come to me with with uh, their questions about their apps, about their, about their technology, and say, Alan, as a learning designer, I, I work for Australian University. They said, please um, teach us how to what's the best way to teach with it? And that's the wrong way round, right? Because you start with the pedagogy and then you go and then apply the technology and do it in the correct way. So they gave birth to this thing called the pedagogy wheel, which was named as a joke. But I'm just going to move through the slides. They're in the deck. They're PDF. Um, my background is is quite diverse uh, and um, I'm, I'm not going to uh, spend very much time talking about it, but there's my contact details because of uh, I, I had it on a lower third, but we took that off for the sake of the podcast. Uh, but that's that's my my email numbers, et cetera. You can refer to them. Uh, there's the the. Um, the actual PDF that I'd like you to download, and it's got the question numbers on it. Um, 
this whole idea of questions is really, really interesting. That's one of my favourite quotes. And th- th- if we spend more time on the questions, we're going to get better answers. So I spend a lot of time developing all the questions of this thing. Um, it's all talking about better pedagogy and t- we address things like teaching practice outcomes, etc. cetera. Um, again, it's all to do with the horse before the cart. That is really a uh, an important thing that we get it in the right order. And this is why I think it's been so popular because it helps the teachers ask the questions in the right sequence. That's what it looks like. So, Alan, can I interrupt you for a minute? I'm, I'm curious. We talk about the cart before the horse. Why is it, in your experience, that educators so commonly try to find the app to solve the problem before defining what the problem is? Um, well, you know, Apple's got a lot to do with it, <laughs> the technology companies. But they make this these absolutely cool tools and not just Apple, but, you know, everybody doesn't doing it. Uh, and of course, this whole new thing on, uh, we'll talk about later on um, AI, but they, they get the tool and they say, now I'm going to teach from it. And so they design, they don't stop and think about what outcomes. And of course, this is what Bloom's addressed back in the fifties. And it's still solid today. You see, you start with your outcomes, start with your transformational teaching, and then once you've got all that clear and you know what you want to achieve, then you go and find the technology and you apply what they call the SAMA model. We'll get to that in a minute as well. And that's where they're designing activities to enhance the the, the outcome and make sure there's uh, a redefinition. Because if you're designing your learning based on the technology and you're not using it properly, students will get bored with it okay is that okay yeah thank you um there you can download a link for for the um uh there's a combined pdf of the android version and the apple version you'll see in that there um that that's got uh, northwest missouri state university that they i worked with them only a few months ago and we developed the version six which is all updated the at the apps and um, and we also introduced a workshop, and uh, that's where you, that's the usual um, way we we list them. So there's a print version, and I get requests from uh, uh, school districts to actually uh, pr- produce the or can they produce the poster and put it up all over their their different teaching areas. So uh, it's it's started as a poster and. It's doing great. Now, this is the workshop. There's seven modules in it. Uh, there's there's history, transformational teaching, attributes, motivation, blooms, technology, and SAMA. And um, we produced a trailer. I don't know if you've you used that, John, but there's a 10-minute trailer that they can go and have a look at. And this is the scope, and this is what it's all about. You know, for every teaching practice you want to use, use and get answers to, am I using graduate profiles? We talk a lot about that. How am I building a learning culture? Am I writing effective outcomes? Are my app choices serving the pedagogy? Is my designing of learning activities effective? Uh, and then have I considered 
de- developing and redefining tasks. So they're the sort of things that we we talk about in the workshop. Uh, module one is is the overview, and a, a teacher colleague of mine said to me early in its life, "This should be in every classroom of the world." Uh, and I said, "You're joking." He said, "Oh no." So I started tweeting, uh, asking teachers to translate it, and we started the the first language project, and it's now in twenty languages, and um, there's about three more languages in process at the moment. But uh, it just keeps going. <laughs> you know, they they love to translate it into the language of the heart. Um, <clears throat> module two is all about transformational teaching, and there was an extract because we had a question uh, in the last presentation I did about about um, transformational teaching. So I took eleven minutes out of the workshop, and that's the video for it. Okay. Um, there's all the theory on on uh, Mazarow's transformational teaching. That is uh, a really really good article, and it's this is we talk about the transformational teaching, uh, how do you do it, and there is um, lots of data on that. Yeah, they're all available from in the packet. Up oh, there's that. Sorry, I didn't mean that to be there, guys. I thought we got rid of that. <laughs> uh, the next, the next module, module three, is all about attributes. And this is a really interesting area because um, a lot of universities, institutions, and educators think that skills uh, are what what is the most important thing that comes in a university, and it is not. It's number four. Number one is all about the soft skills, all about the the. Um, uh, uh, well, actually, it started here. Uh, we had the University of Western Sydney did a 20-year uh, research exercise where they um, asked the bosses who signed the salaries, do the salaries, what, are the, what they most desired in graduates out of the university. And that was the 15 uh, things they looked at. And when he shared it with me, I said to him, look, to Jeff, in a seminar, I said, Jeff, this is most of that's the matters of the heart, not the matters of the head. He said, Yeah, you're right, and the universities don't address it. And things have changed in the last five years, but there's now universities putting a lot of energy in and a lot of a lot of intelligence. A lot of their, their top leaders are spending time developing the student experience, developing what it means to be a graduate from a university of whatever. And so I went thought to myself, well, that, that's really interesting. I went back, I started work on uh, some more research I did in today's learners, and um, I come up with this list. And this list is 25, I think there is, of um, graduate attributes. And I tell teachers to go away, pick the five graduate attributes that you could your, your program could address develop a, a, a graduate profile and then set up a learning contract. That's uh, quite a big big area of it. Then we move on to uh, motivation and motivation uh, we, we, we work with Dan Pink's stuff that he would, is just amazing about uh, autonomy, mastery and purpose. Um, there that that video the is online is up to what 18 million views 
Dan Pink's video, and that can really change what a teacher a teacher can achieve when he starts to say, well, how do I my motivating my students? And he starts to design his learn, pedagogy based on aut- aut- uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, changes the way you design activities. So, so can I, I'm going to interject here again. So we're, what you're saying, it sounds like, is we have this tool, which is the, the pedagogy wheel. It's a, it's a large set of concentric circles, um, for those who aren't familiar with it or uh, maybe can't see it visually. And in the center, it starts with, what kind of person do you want your student to be at the end of it, right? That's and then you're moving right. out to your motivation. Is that the, the next ring? And then what happens? Well, from there, that's, okay, we got the motivation. I'll, I'll move on from that. They're all there to look at, guys. The module five is Blooms. Now, that's the core architecture of modern-day teaching, was in 1950, still is, um, and that is how do you choose um, your your action verbs? How do you um, develop a acti- an activity and categorise by the, the um, cognitive domains? And we spend a lot of time in the workshop on that, and and it's it's talking about how do how do you move your outcomes from remembering and understanding. That's the lower order round to the higher order skills, which are create, evaluate, and uh, evaluate and and analyze, and that's the the whole idea of of blooms. And so, um, we introduced this thing, which was kind of interesting. It's in the framer. It's pretty small there, but that that's a uh, use used with the wheel. It's it's a a slider. It's really low tech, guys. It doesn't even have a battery, and you just. Uh, but it helps teachers get the questions in the right sequence, ask and get the answers in the right sequence to develop transformational teaching. And so, module six is all about the technology. This is where we start to select the right app for the right job. Now, AI is coming along, and we'll talk about that in a second. But when the humans do it, <laughs> you've got you've got to uh, look at a, a a rubric we've developed, and there's other ways to do it, of course. But the rubric is uh, quite an interesting thing, and it was based on work from. Uh, uh, Diane as a name, but anyway, she it's got the selection criteria, and we've got to get to a point where um, the app is, the strength of the app is the best it could be for remembering. And so the categorization of the apps based on Bloom's taxonomy is is really important, and that's what we've been working on by this section six, uh, version six. Okay, um, that's the rubric. Uh, and you ask the questions, it's there to download by everybody. Also, Kathy Schrock, if you haven't heard of it, this is a valuable resource. It's literally called Kathy Schrock's Guide to Everything, and she has got a mammoth amount of research on educational technology. All right, so um, again, I said I was flying. Sama, I don't know how many of them know what that is, that's 
substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. And another trap that teachers fall into quite regularly is they develop poor activities with powerful technology. And this creates frustration in the students. And so you've got to then say, now I've got a really powerful piece of technology. How do I get my my activities with that technology to redefine the task so that the students know the technology is integral part of the of the learning? And that's what the SAMA model does. App smashing is uh, a term that was coined in the Apple digital world, uh, educational world, but basically that is taking the outcome of one app and using it as input output of one app and using as input for some another thing and and creating a learning sequence. It looks like we have a question from Dave. Dave, did you want to interject? Yeah, thanks. Um, I I come to you not familiar, uh, very familiar. I know of it, but I'm not very familiar with Bloom's taxonomy. So I wanted to ask in your domain categories, are you thinking in terms of the cognitive frame of mind of the person or the cognitive orientation of the task or technology? That's a good question. Um, the cognitive. Uh, so the cognitive frame of mind of a, a elementary school student is is probably we would assume very simple, but a college level person is is a little different that way because they've got more experience in the world, mm-hmm. and they've been thinking and been cognitively developing for longer. So in the in the domain categories, I found it interesting that there were different sort of suggestions that this domain was more for dealing with people's feelings or whatever, and this one was more for task or technology. So have I got that right or am I way off base? I think you're right. Um, yeah, the, it, it's it, it's the task and the technology. Okay. Okay. That helps. But I do think we find in when we're thinking of Bloom's, because it is a, a taxonomy structure where the, the lower levels are less sophisticated, is how we generally interpret it. There's disagreement on that. And the higher levels are typically considered higher level. Again, some debate on that. Generally, when you're getting to the the older student, you're going to have more outcomes related to the higher levels of Bloom's taxonomy. Whereas when it's a a younger student, you will still have some of those um, goals that are related to creating or analyzing work, but you approach it totally differently. If someone doesn't have a prefrontal cortex to enable them, to think abstractly about freedom, right? You're not going to ask a, a six-year-old to write an essay, create an essay on the essence of freedom and this comparison with sixth-century, you know, yeah. China or anything like that. You're going to say, um, draw a picture of what it means to be free, and that's still creating, still using Bloom's taxonomy of create, but at an age-appropriate level, um, and their conception of freedom is going to be different too. So I think there's, to some degree, as a student ages. You're going to see more higher level be naturally the conversation um, leads that way. And it's sometimes a little easier to get those um, designs in. But that doesn't mean they're not useful at the younger ages. Yeah. I had one or two more questions. So go ahead. John. No, I was just going to comment on the fact that the one of the problems as a learning designer in a, in a university is that the, the academics tend to go – try to create outcomes in the lower levels. You know, the whole structure is designed for remembering. 
<laughs> the final exam, you know, get through that, forget it, and you know, you, 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 you've got a problem. Yeah, other end of the campus, you know, and so trying. I've I spent many years trying to convince teachers to to work, do the extra, go the extra yard to move around into. Yeah, your mm-hmm. question. Uh, the first version of this wheel that I saw was 4.1, and I, it made me wonder yeah. how you go about revising the wheel, whether other people are involved or do you take suggested yeah. changes? Yeah. Well, actually, it, it's, a, it's a teamwork. Usually the the, up, the upgrade comes um, like five was introduced in Mexico when we did the Spanish wheel, um, and, and we it, – it, it, it goes along with the translations – Six was when um, uh, it's mainly apps, and then at the time I'm updating the apps, I find there's this some progress we made. So with six we added more categories. There's another rotate, another uh, circle in the wheel, and of course in the last who knows how many months, not many, now AI's come along, and. My goodness, what do we do now? And we'll, we'll talk. a big revision this time, yeah. Yeah, um, I'll get to that if if I may. Um, no, that's good. Move, move on. Am I good? Uh, Go one last thing, because it just occurred to me while you were presenting, uh, the reference to thinking laterally intrigued me, and I wondered if you could just take a bit more explanation of that aspect of education. Laterally, and you just. Reef, reef, reef. In the in the slideshow you have, there's a suggestion of uh, thinking laterally as one of the t- um, uh, objectives, I guess, in in one of your long lists there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, that was that. That's an attribute. Lateral thinking. Yeah, as a soft skill. Um, uh, thinking outside the box brainstorming these are the things that that the teachers have got to uh, give more time and more energy to helping students think outside the box and not um, it, 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 academics have a have a, a problem all the time with saying after the word but they give the student an opportunity to say something and they come back with a response and they say but and from then on, it's all it's it's negativity almost. It's it's very difficult for the teachers to 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 give the freedom to think laterally. Yet that's what the bosses want to pay for, you know. If it wasn't for Steve Jobs and those guys who thought very laterally, we wouldn't be where we are. Right. Is that fair I'll enough? let you carry on, Alan. No, you go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Um, before we carry on, just a reminder to our producers, if you have questions or anything that we've said so far is sparking an interest or you'd like us to dive deeper on any of these discussions, please make sure you put your questions into Mukana chat and vote up the questions you'd like us to hit first. But go ahead, Ellen. Well, from there, um, the SAMA model is what I've been talking about. And then uh, this this is a model that's been around quite a while too. But again, it's how what we do with the technology how, how do we design the use of the technology in such a way that it, it really does redefine the task and it doesn't just just substitute it substitution is okay we there's times when we have to do that but most of the time if you, even if you're trying to say now how do I take this piece of technology and redefine my task or my activities my out, and 
to get my outcomes and so that you know you, they get a much more engaging uh, activity. Um, now this brings us to this. Okay, this sounds like uh, I've just reconnected with one of the the um, the guys from uh, I work with at the university because he said let's do an, a pedagogy wheel AI edition. Okay, and, and the, we've gone back to the square one again. Uh, it's really quite interesting. But there was an article only a week ago in The Australian about how AI, that's our, one of our major newspapers down here, how AI is going to revolutionise education. And um, that, for teachers, just looking at what that video does and how there's 50 um ideas for teachers to use AI is, is, is really worth the watch. Um, Matthew is uh, uh, the man I'm talking about. Um, Futurepedia is something that we're, is a sort of a, 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 a resource, a database, a, a repository of apps, and apparently there's something like uh, 2,800, I think, oh, that one, I'm not sure the probably more now, but there's a, a lot of apps and we're trying to figure out can we actually replace the apps around the, the wheel in their domains and generate or is there AI apps that are stronger or weaker? Now, they can do a lot as, and there's not the apps, the normal apps that we've been using that started in tablets and phones, etc. And, and now we could even do a web-based one. Those apps can do much, many things, but there are some apps that are better for remembering and so on. And now we're in this world of AI and where does that go? And so that's what we're looking to do. We, we're starting a new wheel. And if there's anybody out there that's been into this, I'd love to hear, hear about it. And if there's anybody that started to already categorise the available AI apps to um, ed for educational purposes. I'd love to. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, this is only yesterday. Lucy is um, uh, in the Czech Republic. She's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful colleague of, and um, she just uh, asked the questions. Now they're not. They're, they're available uh, on the on the handout. It's not easy to read, but she asked the questions. You know, what school activities? using AI could be provided related to blooms and the level of remember. And she went through those le those um, questions and she understand applying. They're the answers they got back. And they can repopulate the wheel. <laughs> you know, there could be have a whole new list of activities. So using AI uh, in the development of your, your um, outcomes I'm not going to say it's going to replace blooms, but what sort of impact is it going to have? So that's basically what um, what I wanted to say. Um, oh, that's just my my studio um, for those that are interested in video based learning. Um, again, they're my uh, my um, contact details, and I think that would do the trick. Over to you, John. Great. Thanks so much, Alan. And um, as we're thinking about the conversation, it's interesting that you bring up AI because I think there's the same risk where you confuse the tool, AI, 
for mm. the outcome, right? Where you say, well, this is a tool I got to figure out how to use it. Um, and the whole purpose of the wheel is to start at the the outcome first and then design yeah. your way out using yeah. your motivations and your and then the next ring yeah. out was the Bloom's taxonomy words and then some verbs you can use to define learning objectives and then activities that you can use to achieve those objectives and then the last ring being what app can I use to make this activity, to make this objective, to make this goal, to make yeah. this person? Yeah. Um, and, it was, and it's really starting there. So uh, on our panel, if you have any questions, comments for uh, Alan, feel free to put them in. Otherwise, Dave, we can uh, go to the first question, it looks like, from our producers. Yes, um, from Cl Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. At first glance, the pedagogy wheel or patagogy wheel is pretty overwhelming. I can agree with that. Have you I thought do. about reducing the content to five or seven apps at a time? Alan? If I had if I had the experience and, and the resources, uh, people have talked to me about creating an app called the... Uh, as I said, I named it that as a joke because it was at the time when iPads were the hottest thing and uh, the University of Adelaide was the first university in the Southern Hemisphere to give away free iPads and we caused a huge stir. And everywhere I went, people asked me about iPads, and I called it the pedagogy wheel for a joke. <laughs> and it's now an, almost a, 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 um, a user, not a username, what's it called, a trademark. But um, how to represent it? See, one of the things that's been asked of it all the time is to it, it's it's designed as a poster. That thing is designed to be A2 even A1, to be put in a, a, a staff room or call it a teaching space so people can contemplate on it and reflect on it. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to create an app or more. I haven't got the skill, nor have I got the bucks. Yeah, I was wondering, Is uh, it seems to be that this is an example where the uh, form is matching the function in that you wanted a poster. That was the goal. And you've added a lot of content to the poster, but I was wondering if you've had – have you – had anyone approach you about designing something more interactive or that maybe focus? What I was imagining is you could almost build that as, because I use a lot of PowerPoint, um, an interactive PowerPoint or keynote using magic moves. So you can like zoom into certain sections and really highlight, you know, big broad doesn't show a lot of text, but maybe when you zoom in, you can see all that text. So I was just curious if you used other uh, formats or if you had anyone try. I, I, like I've, you know, when, when the big um, focus on what was the uh, Prezi, this whole idea um I've, I've i've not gone there um again i think the future of this thing uh is an app of some sort or more but again i'm um i'm retired <laughs> i i now do more work reach more students for less money than i've ever done <laughs> i don't get paid <laughs> so i have no resources to develop that but um and I'm not. I'm really not interested in making money on it. You know, uh, it's always been free. Yeah, and the fair enough. Appreciate. You know. Uh, what's our next question, Dave? Our next one is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. How many languages is the pedagogy wheel available in, and where do you find them? Okay, uh, there's twenty on my website, um, which is designingoutcomes.com. Um, that uh, is where they're, they're – but they see, when they translate the wheel, I make get a covenant or a commitment from them that they'll make the wheel available somewhere locally on their service, which is usually an institutional service like a university, 
and they can download them from there and also a commitment to do research. Now, pun intended, but there's so much that spins off it. You know, you literally can do a master's degree in it and you, actually there's two people, one in China, one in I think it was Ukraine, uh, are doing their PhD on it. So it's it's um, uh, always been that resource locally that has created the interest and drives it. Now, um, I asked for that. So they, there's 20 languages, but again, if I had more time and energy, I could create another five languages almost immediately. Yeah, is there a specific language you're like, man, this is the, the very next language I wish I could do? Interesting. Uh, I have no partiality. I I just love how people respond in their language of the heart. You know, when 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 they there's something special happens when they see that you've gone to the trouble to produce this professional development in their language and not English, and they've got to do the hard work. Okay, so. I don't know what I could say other than um, look. I've I've touched. I've, I think I've got. I, I did a bit of work on that at one point. With how much of the world's languages? It, it I don't know, but I've touched most of them. You know, there's Arabic. There's there's Chinese. There's um, Spanish, uh, Portuguese. I mean, there's. The answer is on. I haven't got a, a favorite. So you've just tried to reach as as many people as you can uh, with a language that they are fluent enough in, even if it might not be their number one first language. There yeah. should be something most people can find that they can at least interpret. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly enough, you know, I, I've learned, for example, if you want, let me um, don't quote me because it's foggy, but I think it was was Ukrainian or was it Slovenia? Slovenia. Um, I, one of those Eastern European languages is you use Google Translate and you translate into an intermediary language, you know, and it, it does a better job of it. But it's all done by teachers who are committed to helping teachers in their speaking world. So awesome. that's what that's what what I, I ask for, and and they, they keep coming. As I said, Basque about a month ago. I'm waiting for their their uh, efforts. I, it, it goes across as a word document. You know, it's just text, and I I copy it and paste it. Uh, the Hebrew was interesting because it's back the front. You know, <laughs> the, the Arabic with and and the scribe. You know, their, their their text. But interestingly enough, the modern computers seem to be able to get there. They do a lot of proofreading, but the end result is a, a solid document, a solid. And when I teach it over there, they, they do all the slides in translating too. Awesome. What's our next question, Dave? It comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. How do I get a clickable Windows version of the pedagogy wheel? Mac, Android, iOS, Linux? Helen? Okay. The, the, the two versions at the moment are t concerning the tablets and the phones. So Android and um Mac versions. Um, I we haven't. It, so it, 
We have, I even had Microsoft approach me once, one of the Microsoft educational managers, but I'm yet to get somebody come up with the apps, you know, unique. Like there's one for web we could do. Um, we did one for special education. So somebody gives me the apps, we'll do the wheels. But I, I, I can't research w- Windows I haven't got the resources to do so. Is that is that making sense? Yeah, yeah it is interesting that um, you know the iPad in particular became so um, likable by so many people, and I think it's because it has such a simple interface that people were looking for apps for that, as they said in the advertising campaign. Compared to, I've never in my life looked for a Windows app for anything. Um, just an interesting thing. Dave, did you have something you wanted to add on? A couple of things. One was that this was originally designed as a wheel to be received or as a poster considered in its entirety, that these things are cross-connected, your familiarity with these areas and these domains, and then the apps and the outside circle tell you that there may be connections and things to think about. And it's a, it's a sort of I'm going to use the word gestalt without actually knowing if that's appropriate, but it's the sort of impression you get when you stare at it day after day or come by it week after week, and then it triggers ideas in your head of how you could change your teaching. I'm not sure an app, because an app is a sort of guided process, it has an intention all its own for interacting with the user. And it's a little less exploratory in that respect. So as a PDF, a high-resolution PDF, very large version of the poster allows you to zoom in or you know squeeze into these things and examine the words and the connections and the groupings of things and then zoom back out to see how these things are cross-connected just as you would visually in a room staring at the poster i think that's substantial and fairly easy to do already in pdf on any platform because it's cross-platform but I think when people are talking about trying to get at it in terms of this always connects to that, this always means this, that's why it's so vague in that structure is that it's meant for you to think about these possible connections and then come up with your own uses for those connections. So as a teacher, it's a a resource rather than a a tool. You're not going to go exploring to get an answer about an outcome or objective unless you come to it with a need for an outcome or objective, and then it clues you in as to maybe there's a path to that through this app. Well, you're absolutely spot on. Um, and one of the highlights in the the development of the wheel was a, um, or the poster, the model, um, was one of the teachers in New South Wales who teaches young people, little people, <laughs> young people at least, um, he hands, handed it to the students and he said now you, you go and develop your learn your, your your teaching on electricity and magnetism i think it was and they come back and 83 some incredible there's a couple 100 and 200 of them or something they come back with about 80 to 90 percent of them ask could they always learn this way but what what it did was that he said to them you go out and find an app that Mr. Carrington's forgotten, right? And exactly what you're talking about. And and I said, oh, what? I said, if I'd known you were doing that, I would have given them given you $50 to, as a prize. That's because you've nailed it. That the, the kids nailed it before the teachers did. Yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 
And what's our next question, Dave? It's from Douglas Carmichael. How do you create a learning sequence with a group of apps for a specific task? Do you start with one app that is shallower and move towards a deeper app as the student's competence increases? That is definitely true. Um, you know, you, but the whole idea of it is, for example, um, Kahoot, uh, using Kahoot, which is a game tool uh, originally, and and then from there, whatever the outcome is, you process it and move on to something else. It is a developmental process. But the whole idea is there's a certain isolation about apps. People say, you know, I'm going to use this app without stopping thinking about what they're really doing and find that they could do use different tools, apps, et cetera, and create a, a more meaningful learning outcome. Is that and then, Alan, when you when you were selecting the apps for this, did you specifically choose apps that were easier to learn, or are there ones that do have a bit of a learning curve, so someone might actually need to actually well, learn how to use the app before they can actually do the activity that we're assigning? I, I it wasn't so much that one of the, the the requirements that I get hit with all the time is free apps because teachers are very poor, <laughs> right? So yeah, you can get these wonderful tools, but they cost lots of bucks so th whether i like it or not you know i've got to try to find free I, I don't do all the selection by the way um almost all the versions are selected by other people who have committed like a a center for learning and professional development or teaching etc uh, and they 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 go out and they find these apps and these repositories of apps and there's a literally dozens of the best apps to use, then we apply that selection criteria to it. So the answer to that question is really um, we try to find the best apps for the job. All right. And producers, remember that you can ask additional questions in our Mukana chat. Vote up or down the questions that you want to hear in, so that you can hear them in the order you want. Uh, what's our next question? Or Dave, were you going to add something else? No, I was ready for the next question. All right, let's have it. Well, Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, and uh, was on our panel here today. Um, he's got a, a standard OH question going here, so we're going to give it to you. Could you please share your studio setup again, and what software did you use for the presentation today? Uh, that's and that's. I love nerds. Aren't they wonderful? They really are. <laughs> um, of course I can, and I was hoping someone would, I wasn't wasting people's time. Just give me a second. That's my, I'm sitting there right now. Um, and uh, it, it's Ecamm Live is the software that is revolutionized my life as an as a online, online teacher. And uh, this is with all the labels attached. That's the gear. Um, the, the Mac Mini is. The, the tiniest bit uh, in the in the middle of the engine that drives it all, but all the camera above is a a, a um, normal SLR camera. And how it all ties together is just a matter of learning. Is that answer the question? Tell me if it is. I think you've hit the mark myself. I think it's exactly what Tony wanted to know. 
Uh, Tony can speak for himself. He's here. Uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. I was amazed at at the presentation, just in the way it looked. And so, thank you so much for the valuable content. But I, I, I am a nerd, and I, I, I get caught up in and how people are able to do certain things, and how they, you know, I, I think part of uh, part of it for educators and students alike is that you can have great content, but also the way it looks makes a difference in terms it of does. how we internalize. Uh, learning. And so uh, I thank you so much for, for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Um, uh, it's been a, a, a steep learning curve and um, I have very strong ideas about how we should be developing hubs, learning hubs, that's what I call them. But, you know, a, a, a system like what I've got here can service Numbers of numbers of teachers. They, not every teacher needs to have that level of development, but if they know how to do it, you know, and and, and we do we'll do it together. And I produce shows like you produce, not shows, but I can produce an educational presentation and never go on camera, all right? Because I'm doing the driving and and the and the content provider is the the teacher for, and he can be anywhere. He or she can be anywhere in the world. All right. And Tony, that's also one of the slides is in that handout. Uh, so you can actually read the text and reference it if you decide to go shopping a little bit later. But until then, what's yeah. our next question? Oh, wait, go ahead, Alan. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, that one is only a, a day old, but that's a large version of my slides. And they're available for people to use in total. Usually, they, I don't like them. I, they're, they're not editable. That's a PDF with all the hot links, but they're, they're big. You know, you can you can see them. So that's also in the other handout. Fantastic. And we'll make sure we put that link in Discord as a follow-up for our Discord community. Next question, please. From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, in the USA, in 1893, the Committee of Ten laid out the systematic instruction we still see today in education, but the goal was most likely better factory workers. Should we consider totally transforming this old system based on a new desired outcome? A killer of a question. I, I can't read that type that question, so I, I would have to listen to it. How come I can't see that, John, on the, the question on the screen? It's, it's tiny. No, I can't hear you at all now. <laughs> that's okay. He's muted, probably. Sorry, I, yeah, that's <laughs> mute, mute mistake. I've never done that before. You're witnessing the first time that's happened. Um, it's because we're, we're doing it from a, a separate website with the chat links is how we're seeing okay. it. But the question um, is, to, as a reminder, is um, originally education as we know it today was designed to produce factory workers. Um, and the main question, should we consider transforming the old system based on new desired outcomes? And I would follow up with how? Well, um, the... It, the te teaching. This is what I, the what the message I've been saying for twenty years is that the, the world or the the yes, the world of teaching is no longer a single event or a single 
function where that it's three functional. You've got your you've got your content subject matter expert, you've got your uh, learning designer, and you've got your technologist. And those three functions can be in one person, but it's better when they're in three people. And most universities have got that threefold approach to the developing curriculum. And so the answer to that question is absolutely it's got to change and is changing. And it's, it's, it's uh, and of course this AI overlay is, and the new, new problem, new set of opportunities. But um, nonetheless, there, I've, I've got a video in, I use in the workshop of Jack Ma, you know, from China, who's one of the most successful businessmen in China. And Jack was asked at the Economic Forum in 2018, what, what does he look for in his employees, you know? And he lists soft skills, these, these attributes. He doesn't list you know, competencies. Now, it's, it's, competencies are important. And originally, our education was all based on competencies. And it's still, they're still measured. But there's this whole new thing called character development, attitudes, this whole soft stuff that is now far more important. And if we don't teach, Jack actually speaks about it, it's worth looking at, um, uh, is that, you, if you don't develop people at this new end of education, to develop them on process and how to learn, they they will be replaced by machines. That's where he goes with that. Uh, I don't. So we got no choice, guys. We've got to change it. And uh, what's our next question, Dave? It's from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Would the Pedagogy will become more accessible if it were to be represented as a map, building on educators' prior experiences with map reading. Presented as a map. Sorry, is that what you said? Yeah, no, what, what right. made a map what made it look a like it was in map form instead of diagram form, I think is the question. And is it a mind that. map, you think, or a, or a, a geographic map? I, I didn't. If it's a mind map, it might structure well, but that'd be a really that'd be as detailed as the wheel. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The the taxonomy wheel has been there for since nineteen fifty. Actually, two thousand and one was, was they they upgraded it into what they call the digital taxonomy. Uh, I can't remember the, the brilliant academics that did that, but that wheel has got nothing to do with apps. I've added it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, interesting. It's um because it is coming from the the Bloom's taxonomy wheel, which, you know, originally it was a taxonomy, which was structured in a hierarchy and the wheels, part of the purpose of it is to flatten the hierarchy part of those, those yeah. different levels. And so I'm wondering if there's a different format, because I think where, where Chris is saying here, and unfortunately he wasn't able to stay on, but is there a way to maybe illustrate the journey that a learner takes when you're designing it, as opposed to having it be um, presented as a whole um, unit. It's a, a single circle, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's a way to present the same information from a learner's journey perspective as where you would you know, walk through the steps and maybe visualize it that way instead of uh, uh, based on the Bloom's Wheel. I haven't got an answer to that. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating, you know, it seems like there's a lot of cu cups of coffee in that. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, uh, next, what's our next it, question, yes. Dave? 
Douglas Carmichael is asking, can the same learning sequence concept be applied to technology implementation in education? For example, implementing a proof of concept first and then adding to it as budget permits. That's somewhat what Sam is talking about. Yeah, um, how you... I wish I could see these questions. I don't think we can have... Um, Alan, do you do you have you ever experienced um, any ed tech non teachers? Maybe it's administration or IT departments who have used your wheel, and how have they used it? Uh, they they haven't given me any feedback. I've got I've had n numerous requests to publish it, but nobody's come back. And other than that, what I was sharing, uh, their action research is is a, a huge need for action research all the time, not only with my model, but all the time that to get teachers to actually um, research on the on the move this process of transformation. Uh, all I can say is you know the ones that do it are the high, uh, end up the most successful teachers. What about the the selection process when you have your activity and you see you have four different apps that you could use for it? Do you have any advice for teachers on how to narrow down to a single app or how to standardize if there's multiple teachers looking at it to standardize on a single set of some of the subset of well, those? Well, one of the things we've implemented, uh, Matthew, uh, the, my, my colleague in New South Wales, has come up with is basically it's a spreadsheet and and waiting. And it's a kind of a rubric type approach where you you make quantitative qualitative choices and weight them, and that what how do we we apply the rubric to selection. So you get one that's seventy percent quality or mark. You've assessed it as a seventy percent to to achieve what you want. The other one's sixty percent. So that's all you've got to go on, other than then, you know, you've got to step back and look at the whole approach to things and make sure you're not going down a, a rabbit hole. I don't know what else to say. All right. Well, let's move on to our next question. Our next one is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Autonomy, mastery, and or purpose, slide 23. What keeps you motivated in doing this? I can now see the questions. This is cool. Thank you. Um what keeps you motivated? Meaning you and the teacher? I think it means oh, you, I Alan. I think it means you, Alan. Yeah, do it, just working with this. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, um, I guess it comes from you know, the DNA of a teacher. A teacher is, 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 you know, really all about helping people transform into yeah, uh, I'll, I'll say better people. I won't say, I'm not sure that's the answer, but helping other people become all they they, they want to be, and and you know you you want to turn them from a dependent to an independent learner. Okay, and and you um your purpose is to to help them achieve all they want to achieve as a person. Okay, so. Uh, that that autonomy, mastery, and purpose is really um, uh, 
I, I, I just, I just keep doing this because, and I don't have to. <laughs> As I said, I'm theoretically retired, but uh, it, uh, what I see the, when the lights come on in teachers and they're starting to uh, get their questions in the right order, it's, it's worth the effort. And what's our next question? Our next one's from Douglas Carmichael. How do you move from the Sage on Stage model, teacher distributes, student listens, to a collaborative community-based model or even a project model, as, as Dr. Clark refers? Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's you know, t 15 years ago we were talking about how getting the Sage on the stage, the guide on the side, um, and it really... One day we were in, she actually is now Chancellor of the University. She was my professor in New South Wales when I first did my master's degree in interactive multimedia. And she said, really what we're trying to achieve is a sage on the side. And and so how to do it is um, a lot of us got to do with control. But if you go to any university and go into a lecture theatre and watch the teachers down the front who are the really successful teacher, some of their lectures border on chaos. <laughs> they really do. At least they did in Adelaide. You know, they, In other words, they, they, they let go the reins and they let the students be all they can be uh, and guide it. Now, that's all I can say on that. Uh, there's... A lot of different teachers do different ways they do that, but it's a question of passing the control of the learning over to the student-centric. Yeah, I almost wonder if, um, with especially the advent of these large language model-based support systems like ChatGPT, if even the guide on the side is going to be the wrong model, because from what I see is in the future, we'll be using our AI as our assistants to really help us answer those questions, give us the, point us in the right direction. So that's going to be our, our guide or our intern. Um, and I think the teacher's role is going to become a bit more of a coach where you help the student identify what they want to become and, and maybe what that roadmap is. But really, you're using the AI to deliver the, the tool and point them in the right direction. And you're using maybe those apps to do um, the activities. Okay. But it's that's interesting. Absolutely right. Yes. That's the sage on the side, John. You know, Sage on the side is your AI <laughs> assistant. It, well, I don't know if it is. Uh, or maybe that's a teacher's role and the AI is something else. It, is that. Yeah. Um, and, but it boils down to the difference between knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Okay. And um, your AI can get so far, but the wisdom is still needed. And we've got to learn. We've got to teach people to be wise. Now, it's always directly correlated with experience, but when you can tell when somebody has, has wisdom to apply to the content, that, whether it comes from AI or where, but it, it, it's that, that's more important than that, you know. These, these comparative decisions to make based on wisdom. Yeah. And what's our last question, Dave? Again, from Douglas Carmichael, would structuring larger scale educational technology projects as a series of small projects with quick wins reduce the risk of failure versus big bang projects that aim to do everything all at once? Uh, 
He might be talking about trying to change the whole system to improve teaching in an incremental way rather than all at once, if I interpret the question. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the, the drivers in higher education space anyway over the last five years has been this thing about defining the learner experience. Why would you want to do a university, get a university degree from Harvard versus whatever, you know, is Cambridge and, and Oxford or University of Adelaide and University of New South Wales, whatever. Um, this is defining the student experience. And so this is where they have, have, have tried to find the, the things that are unique or the strengths of the educational process. And they do that incrementally. Um, and and uh, I talk about this in one of my workshops too. Um, this whole question of what of of graduate attributes. There's lots of universities now publishing this stuff. That this is the, the what we want our graduates to look like. And and so there's actually even software being developed in the University of of um, in England. Um, Sorry, it escapes me at the moment, but uh, where the it's on the Thames, it's, uh, where the clock is. What's that called? Greenwich, Greenwich University has developed software to help teachers uh, develop their curriculum, and 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 the software helps them to develop the areas of their curriculum to move their students forward in these areas of graduates attributes. Quite interesting stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Alan, so much for joining us today. It was a super interesting conversation and you handed us tons of resources. We appreciate your time and your effort. Thanks also panelists who are here every day and um, answer the questions from our producers. You provide insights. We're so much smarter as a group than we are as individuals and we couldn't do without you. Back end crew, thank you so much for making sure that we all get to the right place. We look presentable so that we can focus on our conversations. It takes a village to hurt these creative cats. And finally, thank you, producers. There's literally no show without you or your questions. If you're watching the show and you're interested in learning more about Office Hours, make sure you sign up via the daily email. You can find the link at officehours.global. There you'll find links to our Discord, and you can sign up to volunteer with the show. Today, if you were to travel from question to question throughout the show, you would have traveled 25,245 miles, or 40,627 kilometers. Or if you're so inclined, you could lay a banana down on the ground, flip it in for end, and find the same measure, but you would need nearly 200 million bananas to do that. We hope you stay through the credits to see all the effort that was put into our show, and we hope you have a great week. Thank you, Alan. That was very stimulating. Are we? I hope so. I was a bit worried about my. Am I? Are we off the air? Well, uh, people listen through the credits. Yeah, we're still we're still recording. Follow up. Yeah. Okay, because you know uh, I was deeply honoured to be invited. I really was. Mm. Haven't thought this deeply about it for quite a while. <laughs> well, we're glad we stimulated you too. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Alan, do you have, I didn't have a chance to ask, do you have an accessible, like an accessibility version for people who are not sighted? Nope. Okay. Harshi? Yeah, we'll work on